before we begin exploring um, the passage of Scripture here in Matthew, we're going to be looking at both Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, but before that, I just want to remind you, in your bulletin each week, um, there's a prayer guide. And it's, it's there at, to serve as a tool to help us grow as, as intercessors before the Lord. And we've also started putting that in the newsletter as well electronically, because if you're like me, I lose everything on my way home from church. So I can't remember where I put it, but it's now in the newsletter so that we can be praying together. The secret of a great church is a church that prays. The secret of a missional church and of a missional life is to become people of prayer who are seeking to intercede more and more. And I want to encourage us as a congregation to to grow in this because we will see God do great and mighty things and we will become more and more connected to one another and to his work here in our midst. It'll even change the way that you worship. Earlier, um, Bex introduced us to the song, My Lighthouse. Now, Becky and I come from the mountains of Colorado. We're about as far from any major body of water as you can get on the planet. I mean, so the ocean is beautiful and wonderful, but it's not a daily experience. But as I was singing that song, God reminded me of all those refugees, what it would have been like to be in one of those boats fleeing across the Mediterranean, seeking to escape persecution, seeking someone to rescue them, crying out to the Lord to be their savior. And it changed the way I was able to sing that song, to sing it as a prayer as intercession for others. And that's why I just want to, I want to encourage us to grow in these ways, to think about, you know, not just what does this song mean to me, but Lord, how can this prompt me in prayer, in reaching out and interceding for the hearts and lives of others? All right, well, let's, let's begin taking a look here in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Jesus gives us some, some parables But the theme of his teaching is about his return. And Jesus very much wants our lives to be um, focused on the fact that he is coming back and that he will come back quickly. He will come back at a time we do not expect. And there's a purpose in his reminding us of that. And that is to prompt us to not just live day after day after day, but to live in the light of the of the truth that our king is coming back. And it will change us when that is the focus of our heart and our life. Now, last week, as we looked at um, the backstory of the parable of the two debtors, we discovered that Jesus doesn't see labels. He never met a prostitute. He never met a tax collector. He met people that he saw a masterpiece waiting to be restored. He doesn't see your label or my label either. And in his grace, he extends to us the opportunity to become who he created us to be. But that extension of grace is an invitation that must be responded to. And in his grace, today we see him giving us a warning to say, you've got to respond and it's got to be authentic. If it's not, if you're just going through the motions, if you're just trying to make yourself look good, you are in great spiritual danger. 
And that's the focus that we find here in the scriptures. So we want to begin asking ourselves this simple question. Are you ready? If Jesus would come back today, are you ready? Would you be incredibly surprised? Would you be embarrassed? Would you be unprepared? What would your life be like if he came back? Now, this question that Jesus is going to raise through these chapters doesn't just deal with whether we are saved or not. It also deals with how we are living. And if we back up from the passage that Preston read for, read for us into chapter 24, there is a, a parallel parable that's given that talks about Christ's return. So I want us to back up and begin with the, the parable briefly of chapter 24, verse 42. I want to encourage if you have your Bibles or if you have a Bible, use that. Look at it. And, and if there's questions that come up, especially, you know, for many, English is not your first language. So don't hesitate to ask questions. Send them to me. You can email me, and I'll ask Preston and, and or somebody else in the congregation who knows more than I do, and we'll find out an answer to it, our understanding of its word. But let's get this point here. To be ready for Christ's return, we must serve Jesus Christ. Let's look what he says in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day, on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus gives us a strong warning here, but he also gives us an incredible invitation. God has entrusted you and I with his work, with his possessions. And he's asking us to invest our lives in the work of his kingdom. He promises that he will reward that work. But he also warns us that if we become selfish and self-centered, we will face judgment. Because you see, what we do, what, what he has given us, reveals the true nature of our relationship with God. Whether it is real or whether it is false. So to be ready for Christ's return, we must labor in the work of Christ. What is it he calls us to do? Well, it's more than just going to church. It is a work that is, that is um, given to us to show the good news of Jesus Christ to the people around us. To love them the way Christ loves us. To get involved in their life. To take interest in their life. To serve their needs. To make a difference in this world. 
Jesus has directed this parable to his disciples and through them to us as the church. He wants us to pay attention and remember he is coming back and we need to live ready. And so he contrasts two different kinds of servants. And every one of us in this room, we fit in one of these two categories. The servant of Christ lives to give. The faithful servant, the one who was focused on the work of the master, was investing his life in the things that would make a difference for eternity, in showing forth the grace of Christ, in communicating the truth of Christ to the people around him, in serving the needs of others. That was the focus. We are to live to give. But the contrast is a selfish or evil servant where we live to get. And it is so easy to become self-consumed if we forget that Christ is coming back. If we just focus on here and now and our comfort, on our pleasure, on our ideas, our significance, it's easy to live to get instead of live to give. So as I was reading through this this week, I had to ask myself, a few questions. Am I ready? Am I serving him? Or am I just going through the motions? What am I doing to really make an impact on the world around me, on my neighbors, on the people that I interact with on the tram or the metro, at the store? Am I sharing the love of Christ with them? Am I making a difference in their life? Am I investing the things that God has given to me in earthly things, which will quickly pass away? Or am I investing them in the work of Christ? So ask yourself, what have I done this past week that will last for all eternity? It can be a hard question. But isn't it an important question? Deep inside, we were made for something so much more than the moment. We were made for eternity. Therefore, shouldn't we live for that which truly lasts and makes a difference? The faithful and wise servant pursued the work of the master. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Well, secondly, if we are to be ready, to live ready, which is his invitation in these chapters, in chapter 24 and 25, we need to seek Christ as first in our life. I want to invite you to turn over to a parallel passage in in Luke. Luke chapter 21 is similar in many ways to Matthew 24 and 25. It is a, a time where Jesus is talking about his return. He gives a lot of different details about what circumstances will be like, about how there'll be a normality of life, things will go on as they have before, and then, but there will also be signs. But here in, in Luke chapter 21, he gives us again a warning. Let's look at what it says. Luke 21, 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. That's a tough word. <laughs> Um, with the cares of this life, with the moment, that the day come upon you like a trap, 
for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, in the context, Jesus is giving, as he does in much of his teaching, he's giving an immediate, this is coming very, very soon, and he's giving a picture of something that will happen in the distance and impact our lives individually as well. And so in his teaching, he's teaching about the destruction that is going to come to Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that there will be, um, the, the Roman armies will come and basically obliterate the nation of Israel, and the early church will be scattered to all the nations. So he's giving a warning about what those immediate events are, but he's also giving a far view, a reminder of what things will be like as we get closer and closer to his return. And what he's telling us is to live expectantly. It will make an incredible difference in your life and in my life if we live with an expectation that Christ is coming soon. But it's not just that he's coming. Here's what expectation does for us. I want to live in such a way that I expect God to show up, whether it is the return of Jesus Christ or whether it is the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in and through my life or the life of another one every single day. That's what it means to live expectantly. To not get bogged down with the cares of this life, simply thinking about what am I gonna do to get through the day, to to deal with this problem in my workplace or this situation in our family. Those things are important, but they will be put in their proper perspective when we live expectantly and we seek Christ first. If we truly are watching for his coming, living expectantly, it will change the way you and I live. Because our day can begin with a prayer like this. Lord, you may come back today. How do you want to use me this day to prepare for your coming? And if you don't come back today, you're still going to use me to prepare for your coming. Help me to live expectantly. Lord, you've given me my mind, my body, my abilities. How can I invest them this day in the work of your kingdom that hastens your return? How can I touch other people's lives so that we truly become closer and closer to your return? Jesus, in in Matthew chapter 24, one of the indications he gives about his return is that the gospel will be proclaimed to all the earth and then the end will come. That's why we have missions. That's why we engage in sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with all peoples, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, because they are of immeasurable value to God. And that as the gospel goes forth, the return of Christ gets closer and closer. I want to live for that. And make that a priority of my heart and life. Living expectantly helps me to focus differently on my possessions, on the things God has given me, even on myself physically. I would like to be able to pray what I'm going to say. But I'm going to confess, I don't know that I'm there yet. But this is what I want to be able to pray because I want to focus in on the fact that Jesus is returning 
soon and live expectantly. I want to be able to pray, Lord, if you give me a disease or a disability comes into my life because of the brokenness of this life, would you use that weakness in me this day to show your love for others? The truth is, oftentimes, our weaknesses, our struggles, our trials are the very canvas upon which God wants to use our life to proclaim his goodness and greatness to others. As they see how he sustains us through trials and difficulties and even sickness, his greatness is displayed. The beauty of who he is is put on display and people can see that it's real. It's not just empty promises. But in the midst of the brokenness of life, when we seek to put Jesus Christ first, it communicates our hope that we really do believe he is who he says he is and he's coming back. Well, thirdly, to be ready for Christ's return, we must surrender ourselves to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. That's the parable that we read earlier. Let's look at it here in Matthew chapter 25. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins or 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamp. Now this picture here is is, um is something that's a little bit different for us because we don't have the familiarity of, of what it was like, what normal life was like when you had a Jewish wedding. In the West, we practice our weddings a little bit differently. Everybody gets their invitations. You know exactly when it's going to start. You know right where it's going to be. And they plan out every single detail. And it's designed to not have any surprises. Surprises at weddings for... <laughs> especially for mothers of the bride, are not a good thing, okay? Or the bride. Either one of them. I did a, I did a, a wedding uh, at the Mirror Chapel uh, last summer, and the Czech officials showed up, and they didn't really expect the Czech officials to, to show up and kind of took over the service. And let me tell you, the bride was not very happy with her surprise. Um, I Later, when I was able to to snicker, found it quite humorous, actually. But um, I did try to, to rescue things for her and make it a very, very beautiful service. Um, but it was a bit of a surprise because she didn't know they were going to show up. But in Jesus' day, in the Middle East, and especially in, amongst the Jews, they had a very different practice when it came to weddings. So let me give you a little bit of background of, of a Jewish wedding. This is the backstory behind this. And this backstory ultimately always points to God. God in Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5 says, I, your maker, am your husband. He portrays himself as this is the relationship that I want to have with you. And so it is very natural for Jesus to take up that same theme and talk about us believers, followers of Christ as his bride. He is the groom and we, the church, the followers of Jesus, believers in him, are his bride. But in, a, in the first century, um, the wedding would have been a, a little bit different. 
In many cases, the weddings were prearranged, not always, but oftentimes they were arranged by, by the parents of both the bride and the groom. They would be involved in the process. Secondly, the marriage, the part that made it binding was actually the betrothal. That's when you would have a, a marriage covenant given. This is why when we read in the New Testament about Mary and Joseph that they were betrothed, it was a legal binding covenant. They had made an agreement, they had signed the agreement, and before God, they were committed to one another. But they had to wait for the wedding feast, the wedding ceremony. And there were a number of things that would happen during that time in between. Because normally what you would have in this case is the father of the groom would have a very important role to play in the wedding. He would say, okay, son, you have signed the marriage covenant. You are betrothed. You are engaged to your bride. Now it's time for you to be a man. It's time for you to show her what kind of husband you're going to be. And so the first thing that you need to do is you need to go and prepare a place for your bride. And usually what would happen is the, the groom would begin building a home, often attached to his father's home, that would be the first house for he and his bride. Also, in the um, Jewish law, you were required, this is a really cool thing, I wish we still practiced this because we're missing out by not doing it. You actually took a year off when you got married. So you had to save up for a year. It wasn't just a honeymoon of, or like Becky's and I's, which was a day and a half. It was, um, it was really a long period of time. Um, you, were to, you were excused from duty in the army. You, it was your focus to make a marriage and to invest that first year of life learning to love your wife. So you would go and prepare a place for your wife and you would prepare yourself to provide for your family. And then when the father said everything is ready, the, the dwelling place is perfect, now it's time to go and get your bride. And as it's getting closer, the invitations would be sent out. The announcement would be going out saying the wedding feast is coming soon. But soon might mean today or tonight or early in the morning, or tomorrow. They didn't know. And oftentimes, the father in particular took great joy in saying, you know what, I think we'll have a little fun with this. We're going to wait until about 1 a.m., and then I'm going to send my son out to go get his bride. Well, that's what's happening here in this picture. The bridesmaids have gathered together and they're waiting for the procession to come and get the bride to go back to the groom's house and have the wedding feast to where their marriage will be brought together as one. And these bridesmaids had an incredibly important duty. It mentions the lamps here because usually this procession happened at night. And so it was their job to have the lights that would lead the procession and light up the procession through the streets and they would go through every street, every corner. They would make the procession as long as possible because they wanted everyone to be woke up knowing a wedding is happening. And they went everywhere with their lamps shining forth the light of the fact that the bride and the groom are coming. The wedding is about to happen. 
Now, this picture also tells us and explains to us why Jesus makes a very strange statement in our minds. Look at verse 24, or excuse me, chapter 24, verses 36 and 39. But con- this is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. Look, look what he says. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Why? Because it was the Father's privilege to say to the Son, Son, go and get your bride. Jesus, out of love for the Father, sets aside this portion of his omniscience and says, God, the Father, this is your call. When you say everything is ready, that's when I'm going back. He's honoring the Father and he's fulfilling this picture of a wedding. Jesus has gone on to prepare a place for us. He's made ready. That's what he tells us in in the book of John. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And in my Father's house are many dwelling places. It's all a part of this wedding picture. The backstory of this whole parable. The timing is the privilege of the Father. But the assurance is the Son is coming soon. The groom will come back. And these maidens, they had a responsibility. They represent the church. They represent you and I. And their responsibility, what they had been called and what their life was supposed to be lived for was to be the light of the world, just as Jesus instructed us in Matthew chapter 5, to take the light of his gospel, of his truth, and to shine it forth. And what it's saying is that half of them were prepared and were living on mission for Christ. And therefore, they were ready. But the other half, even though they seemed to be expecting Christ, even though on the outside they seemed to acknowledge an interest and a love for the groom, their actions revealed the condition of their heart. Because you see, the oil, oftentimes in the Scripture, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. We find in Zechariah chapter 4, in particular, there's a vision um, given to the prophet Zechariah that talks about a lampstand and how the Spirit of the Lord is that oil, is that flame that lights up this lampstand. And all through the Scripture, you see oil being used for anointing, saying this is the Holy Spirit's presence on the life of a priest or on a king or in cases of healing. Oil was used because it was a representation of the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is we have people that on the outside appear to be religious, to be a part of God's kingdom, but inside there's no oil. The Holy Spirit doesn't live. It doesn't exist. That's why Jesus is giving us a warning to make sure that our relationship with him is authentic. Paul comments on this in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 9, saying, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, does not belong to him. It is a call because God loves us so very much to examine our hearts and say, is my faith real? 
Am I simply trying to be religious and make myself look good, or have I fully trusted and given myself to Jesus Christ? The proof of our readiness is the Holy Spirit, is his presence at work in our life. And the only way to truly live ready is to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation if it's real. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, then you are saved. You're not going to run out of oil, but we do leak, okay? And we do need to be refilled. But we need to first examine if it's real. So some observations from the, from the 10 bridesmaids or virgins. Both of them had lamps. Both of them had worked. They had trimmed their lamps. Both appeared to be waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom. And from the outside, they looked the same. But inside, something was missing, the oil. The Holy Spirit was not there. And that's why we have this warning in verses 10 and 12. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. These are sobering words, but we understand the heart of Jesus Christ, that he loves you so much, he wants you to make sure that it's real. You may have been in church all your life. A few years ago, I had a man in my church. Um, he was a deacon. He'd been a part of the church longer than, than we had been there. And he was faithful. He served in all kinds of ways. And one Sunday, God just convicted him with, that, with the absolute realization all he had done was go through the motions. He had never trusted Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. He had never called upon the name of Jesus and said, Lord, would you save me? And that Sunday, he turned. He humbled himself before a congregation where everyone expected and thought he was saved. And it was the most joyous day of his life. What fear said would be humbling and embarrassing God turned into an incredible celebration and had the privilege of baptizing him the next week, and it was amazing. God wants you to make sure it's real. To be ready for him, we must surrender ourselves to him as Savior and as Lord. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, when Israel is informed of who Jesus is and they hear the message of the gospel as being presented by the early church, this is what occurs. Acts 2, 36 and 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They came to an understanding that Jesus has to be both Savior and Lord. Kurios is the word in the Greek. If he's not your Lord, you need to seriously question whether he's your Savior. He is both. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, turn, turn from trusting in yourself. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be changed. That's Jesus' message to each of us here today. Make sure it's real. If you can't remember a time or a place or a reference point in your life when you personally trusted Jesus Christ, today is the day to do that, to call upon his name and say, Lord, I want to know you for real. I, I don't want to just believe about you. I want to believe in you. And today I'm giving my life to you. I want to turn from trusting in myself to trusting fully in you. That's the invitation. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is also an invitation. Ultimately, the Lord's Supper is a time when we look back and we remember what Jesus Christ has done, his death upon a cross, sacrificially giving himself to pay the debt of our sin, his burial and his resurrection, and it's also a reminder that he is coming back. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, every time we take the cup and we eat the bread, it is a reminder of what he has done and that he will return very soon. It is a reminder for us to live expectantly. You see, Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him often because we need reminded of what he has done and that he is coming. And it's, it too is a picture of the marriage ceremony. In a betrothal, the bridegroom sets a cup before his bride. And she will either drink the cup in total commitment to her betrothed or she will turn away and walk out on him. It is a covenant in the cup in the same way that we celebrate the new covenant in the cup that Jesus gave for us. So in a moment, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper and we remember that Jesus' words were on the night that he before he was crucified, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat of this for this is my body which is given for you. And he took the cup in like manner and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant. It is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. It's a new covenant he's giving. It's a proposal. He's saying, I'm inviting you to believe in me and be united with me as my bride. Every time we celebrate it, it is an invitation. So today, the invitation for all of us is examine our heart, see if it's real. And then also, for those where you know it's real, ask yourself, am I living expectantly about his return? I wanna ask us to do just an affirmation of faith together, um, I just put some, a few little words together, and there's a slide there. It says, a communion affirmation of faith. And I'd like us to, to stand up together. When we come to the table of the Lord, this is what we are affirming. We are saying to God, by taking of the bread and of the cup, that this is what we believe with all of our hearts. So would you say this together with me as a congregation? 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, died for us. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ, our King, is returning soon. Lord God, would you let those truths, those realities, sink deep into our hearts and into our lives so that as we come and partake of the bread and we come and partake of the cup, well, we may remember what you have done. We may remember your sacrifice. We may remember your victory that you conquered death and the grave and that we will remember that you are coming back soon, perhaps even today. Lord, let those truths become a reality in our heart and life, we pray. Speak to each and every heart, Lord. You know what we need to hear from your Holy Spirit and from your word. Challenge us and do not let us leave here unchanged. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.